0: Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all.
1: Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in. Virtual studios in South Bend, Indiana, at the University of Notre Dame. And sitting across from me is the kindest, the most lovely, the most joyful, the most dynamic of all deacons, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon.
0: Hello, Ken. How are you doing today, my friend?
1: I am well, thank you. Happy to be back after some travel. Happy to have you back after some travel. All sorts of, you know, just so many joyful things yes it's good
0: <laughs> it is good that we are here
1: <laughs> it is good that we are here to, in our little tents right here on top of this uh, on top of this radio mountain absolutely
0: yeah. <laughs> so uh we're in the throes of summer now and yep uh so things must be fairly slow for you
1: now on campus well yeah so this particular week we actually host our annual pro-life intellectual formation program called the Notre Dame Vida Institute. And we're welcoming about uh, 50 people from around the world, pro-life leaders and rising pro-life leaders in organizations that are involved in everything from political work, kind of lobbying, to hands-on uh, boots in the trenches, kind of, kind of uh, working with families, women and families to support them uh, from birth through, uh, through death. So we address all issues of legal and biological and political and theological, as well as kind of practical things about communication and building a culture of life. Uh, And so this uh, and again, from from conception to to death. So we also discuss euthanasia and uh, kind of medical aid in dying, as it's called, uh, and, and the growth of that whole kind of regime. And so it's really it's an intense week. Uh, a lot of brains get really full midway through the week, and then we keep pouring it in, but uh, it's also an opportunity. We've built this huge network of pro-life leaders and pro-life practitioners around the world. We have probably about 450 uh, alumni of our Vida Institute program at this point, and so it's really, it's really awesome, and we're represented. Every year we have six or seven different countries represented people coming from different continents. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really an, an intense week, but then, yeah, it does, it does get, uh, quite a bit less hectic after this week, but it's, it's busy. How about you? Yeah. So, uh,
0: this, yeah, this summer is fairly busy as far as usually it's a slower time for me and I do, and, and as is normal, uh, I do a lot of overseas travel during the summer. Sure. And so, um, so I'll be heading to, uh, on a speaking tour for most of the month of July, I'll be heading to Papua New Guinea and to New Zealand and Australia, and then I come back from that tour, and then I'm home for a couple of days, and I head to Steubenville, where wow. I'm speaking at the Defending the Faith Conference, sure. and I'm actually doing Pints with Aquinas again, And Back with Matt podcast. Fred, our
1: friend. With Matt Fred.
0: yep. And then uh, I'm staying for a couple of days to do a filming project with uh, Scott Hahn at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And then I'm uh, speaking at a keynote dinner in San Antonio in August and a couple of other things. So, yeah, it's uh busy, busy. summer for me, which is good. Yeah. good. I, I'm a, I like being busy.
1: That's fun. Well, delightful. Well then I'm glad that we actually have an opportunity here uh, to continue our weekly conversation. But uh, we've been having this wonderful kind of little romp through history, and especially the early history, uh, meeting the fathers and doctors of the church. And uh, I'm delighted that we're going to continue that conversation tonight, because uh, here we're going to meet another one of the Cappadocian fathers. So last week you introduced us to Basil the Great. So so great and so named after a, a delicious plant. But uh, Basil the Great, um, it turns out, had lots of family who were also holy people. And I'm going to uh, introduce us to Gregory of Nyssa, his brother, tonight. So... A little bit about Gregory born in three thirty five a d around there we don't we're not for certain, but born around three thirty five uh, he is the little brother of Basil the Great and uh, the little brother also of another saint Saint Macrina the younger, who herself was a holy woman who ended up founding a monastery of of uh, Uh, nuns. uh, And so then he also is the older brother to Saint Necrotius and to Saint Peter of Sebasta, as well as the grandson of Saint Macrina the Elder. So, you know, this is actually a hopeful note for parents, right? When you raise your children in the faith, you give them the gift that you yourself have received and you encourage them to be virtuous. You encourage them to pray. Good things happen. God actually takes those prayers of yours and turns them into holy children. Uh, And so obviously, you know, there's decisions made and Gregory was a virtuous young man. Uh, He was known to be quiet and meek, uh, especially as compared to his outspoken brother, Basil. He initially pursued a secular career as a rhetorician, so he, was, he wanted to basically be what we would think of as a lawyer or an advocate, um, but he ended up uh, being elected and appointed in 372 as the bishop of a newly established diocese, the newly established See of Nyssa in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day South Central Turkey. Now, this new diocese was created because the emperor had kind of split a large, well, we would think of a large state, a large province. He'd split it into two parts. And so the church wanted to um, make sure the boundaries are kept and things like that. And so the archbishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia appointed Young Gregory to be the new bishop of this new diocese. It just so turns out that the Archbishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia was his older brother Basil. So Basil uh, appointed his brother, knowing him to be a holy man. Uh, even though he, again, he was not as Gregory is not as outgoing, not as as forceful, not as perhaps well known as a preacher as Basil himself was, but. He was appointed and he became the first bishop of Nyssa. And it's the legend actually says that Basil told Gregory, he said, Nyssa is going to be remembered more for you than you will be remembered in Nyssa. And of course, to this day, when we say Gregory of Nyssa, that's pretty much the only way people remember this town, which has long since been obliterated, no longer an active town. Uh, It's near, you know, a small town in south-central Turkey, when we think of Nyssa, we think of one one person, and it's Gregory.
0: So, oh, I, I'm glad it's not Nissa, Oregon. <laughs> You're right. You nope, know, which nope. is near the Idaho border. Oh, right, <laughs> right,
1: exactly. Yeah, there are. You know, it's funny <laughs> when you think about it, the church. We do this even to this day. You know, we the church establishes dioceses, especially in you know back in the early church, these places which were peopled by Christians, you know, which were established by Christians, which had important and saintly leaders and and important and saintly lay people. Even though the town may now no longer exist, we can keep that memory alive. So for example, to this day, the, uh, the Archbishop of Portland, the diocese was originally Oregon City. So Oregon City was the original diocese that is now the Archdiocese of Portland. But the Diocese of Oregon City, even though it's been what we would call suppressed, we continue to use that bishopric name for auxiliary bishops who don't have uh, a bishopric of their own. So there is probably, I'm, I'm not sure right now, but there probably is a what we would call a titular bishop of Oregon City so-called titular meaning in title only because the diocese itself doesn't exist so that's always one of my kind of fun things when you meet an auxiliary bishop to ask them oh what's your what's your diocese and they will be oh i'm in the archdiocese of portland i was like yeah but what's your titular diocese you know who are you uh the bishop of uh, of the faithful of even if that town no longer exists so that's one of those small little catholic trivia bits that you can regale your friends with at dinners
0: yeah exactly
1: <laughs> so as bishop of nissa gregory experienced much like bishops the lot of the bishops that we've talked about of late gregory experienced bouts of exile over his orthodoxy over the fact that he believed what the council of nicaea affirmed about the trinity and about jesus so gregory was in exile you know he's appointed in 372 And he spent a number of the years between 372 and 378 in exile outside of his diocese because the Arians still held great sway, as well as other minor heretical sects that had power. They had, um, you know, the ear of the local uh, civil leadership. Uh, So Arianism continues to exist in this day, even though it was slowly being rooted out. Gregory participated in the Synod of Antioch in 379. Uh, He was briefly elected as the Bishop of Sebasta, which is, while he remained being the Bishop of Nyssa, Uh, so he was holding two different dioceses, uh, kind of had the spiritual leadership of two different dioceses, before he was able to actually invite, encourage, cajole the faithful to elect his brother Peter as the Bishop of Sebasta. And as a matter of fact, today we know his brother as Saint Peter of Sebasta. And then the other thing that Gregory of Nyssa famously did, he participated in the First Council of Constantinople in 381. Constantinople is important because it really helped flesh out the role of the Holy Spirit in the creed. So when we recite the creed today on, at Mass, we most often recite the nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. And it's so-called because what was started in Nicaea was finished and rounded out at the Council of First Council of Constantinople in 381. And uh, Gregory of Nyssa actually gave a very famous sermon there at that council, which helped sway the the uh, council fathers to adopt the orthodoxy that we know of today as uh, the text of that very creed. Those are kind of some of the main highlights. Uh, He also did a lot of writing, and uh, Gregory is very famous. Um, So it's funny, it's said that Basil was the, the great leader. He was the the great administrator of this little group of three theologians that we call today the Cappadocian Fathers. So Basil the Great was the great administrator. Gregory of Nyssa was his younger brother. He was not necessarily as skilled as a preacher. He was not necessarily as as talented. A uh, he didn't write as much as as Basil did, or nor uh, as much as um, the third of the Cappadocian Fathers, and I. I don't want to steal any thunder because, Deacon, I know you're going to tell us about the third of the fathers next week. So I don't want to steal any thunder. But let's just say that Gregory of Nyssa was not the most impressive of the three, except for the fact that he is said to have excelled his two best friends, his brother and his friend, to have excelled them in holiness and in depth of thought. And so often when we think of Gregory of Nyssa, what we think of is his writing. And we think of what he wrote and his ability to integrate the thinking, particularly of Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, uh, and the Stoics. So he moved very freely in the thought of the intellectual forebears, and he pointed out how their philosophies anticipated the fullness of the revelation of Christ. They themselves, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, all of these philosophers that came before, did not have... Everything, they obviously did not have divine revelation. They did not have God's revealing of himself to us. But they did have what we think of today as the seeds of the word, or the semina verbi. Different ideas, you know, we in our philosophy and in our theology today, we draw upon the philosophy of Aristotle to explain, for example, the change that takes place in the Eucharist. When bread and wine continue to look like bread and wine, but are transformed entirely and utterly into the body and blood of Christ. We use Aristotelian philosophy to try to explain that true miracle that's taking place in the sacrament of the Eucharist, in the Holy Mass. It's people like Gregory of Nyssa who were able first to explicate how the philosophy of somebody like Aristotle could be employed in to explain even more deeply the self-revelation of Christ, the self-revelation of God that we think of as theology. So Gregory is a very, very vitally important early theologian who uh, helps us to understand even more uh, using human reason to supplement the great gifts of divine revelation.
0: Yeah, and that's the beautiful balance that I love about our faith. You know, it's, it's the mind and the heart. You know, because sometimes you, you see people kind of overemphasizing one over the other, or, or sometimes there's tension between faith and reason, but there really shouldn't be. Uh, and that's what I love about particularly these Cappadocian fathers, and we'll see this as well with uh, Greg, Greg of Nancy Anson, uh, that there's a the wonderful balance, just like St. Thomas Aquinas that will come after them, again, known for their intellectual prowess, but they also have very deep and beautiful hearts. Yeah, And it's that beautiful combination, I think, is is the key to evangelization even today in our time today, you know you have some people who are attracted to the faith because of the intellectual aspect of it, the reason of it, you know why? How do we know that God exists? You can't see, taste, touch, or smell God, you know. And and, and the thinking of the contemporary culture, unless you have a sensory experience of something, then it's not real, you know. We have this idea of nominalism that you cannot come to know things by. Abstract concepts, but only through the uh, empirical study of specific and individual objects. You know, so unless you see a dog, there's no such thing as dogness. There's no quality of something that is dogness unless you actually have a dog standing in front of you. The idea in your mind that dogs exist is not real. You know, things like that. Yeah, and, and then you also have the beautiful the the heart pieces, right? So you have an adoration when you sing oh Salutaris or You're seeing a beautiful hymn at Mass that really pulls at the heartstrings. And what I love about what these great Cappadocian fathers do is they show us that in order to be, I think, fully integrated into our faith, to really have a deep experience of God, there has to be a beautiful connection, a nexus between mind and heart. It's not either or, it's both and.
1: Yeah, very much. I think that fits with kind of reading Gregory of Nyssa. And this saint appears in a lot of the, you read him a lot in the Liturgy of the Hours, especially in the the Office of Readings. He is spread throughout uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I mean, he has a number of great quotations in there. And kind of, again, as you say, he connects the lived experience with mysticism. In a way, he actually is um, was vitally important for uh, exploring kind of the deeper uh, steps and stages of prayer and mysticism. So some of his notable works include one that is uh, called The Life of Moses, which is as much a commentary on mystical prayer as it is a commentary on the life of Moses as presented in the scriptures. One of the essential things that he says in his theology is, look, he is a practitioner of what we call apophatic uh, theology, which is to say that we know God more by what we say he is not than, by, than what he is, uh, because God is infinite and infinitely then incomprehensible to us. Though God does invite us to relationship with himself, and that's why we need revelation to understand even what we do of God, but that even that revelation tells us more about what God is not. So, in the life of Moses, Gregory speaks of three stages of spiritual growth that each of us go through. Um, there's this initial darkness of ignorance, which we don't know anything about God, but we just know that we want to be with God. Then there is spiritual illumination in which God actually reveals himself to us. God is the one, again, doing the work. God is the one offering to us. So this is what we think of as grace. Even our desire to know God is itself a gift from God. And so spiritual illumination is God revealing himself to us in the light of what we can comprehend. And then finally, the third stage of spiritual growth for Gregory of Nyssa is darkness of the mind in mystic contemplation of the God who cannot be comprehended. So we've been invited by God in that initial motion where we realize we know nothing about God. We've been given a little bit of spiritual illumination, and then we are plunged into what Gregory defines as a darkness of the mind in which God alone is present. And I will confess, this is a stage I am not often at in my prayer. My prayer is, well, I thank God regularly that, that Jesus gave us the Our Father so that I have words to pray. And, you know, and I love my, I love, you know, praying the rosary and things like this. These prayers, these rote prayers that we learn, you know, from our parents, We we pray together in liturgy, these prayers actually are meant to lead us towards the point where we, can be at one with God in contemplation. They're drawing us forth. Even the rosary, which is meditation, is meant to actually draw us into the deeper form of contemplation, which again, as Gregory says, it takes place in darkness, it takes place in, in what we would think of darkness of the mind. And so I look forward someday to being at that point where I can be in mystic contemplation of God. It's also a a bit of a frightening thought, too. But we read this in Jacob in in the book of Genesis. You know, how terrible is this place? It is the very gate of God. You know, when he says terrible, he means how impressive, how awesome is this? And that, for me, is kind of the attraction of the contemplative life that Gregory so well describes.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, and, and it gives us hope. And we we are going through our own darkness, right? Because yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's hard to see God when we're going through something really hard, or even in our culture today, you know, as confused, as broken, as hurting as our culture is today, you know, it's sometimes easy for us uh, to give up hope. Like, what, you know, you say to yourself, what could I possibly do in the midst of all of this? You know, I'm nobody, I have no influence at all, you know, but it's not about that. It's about the witness that I am to others, that despite what's going on in the world, I have hope. That despite what's going on around me, I have faith and trust in Christ. And and that's what these Cappadocian fathers help us to to realize and to understand. It's not just, okay, these bunch of guys that taught great stuff and now they're dead. And, (laughs) you know, we recognize their contributions. Now they're called fathers of the church. I mean, that's wonderful. And quite frankly, they could care less. You you think they care that they're considered some of the greater theologians and they helped us develop Trinitarian theology and they don't care about that stuff. They, they all they cared about was people coming closer to Jesus, yeah, people falling more deeply in love with the Catholic faith. That's what they cared about, and that's what we should also care about too, not lose hope of what's going on around us, but to see these this is an, actually an opportunity for greater hope to fall more deeply in love with with Jesus Christ in our faith. Amen, brother, preach it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to make note of with Gregory is that he was one of the earliest Christian writers to address the idea of abolition of slavery. He wrote uh, in one work, if man is in the likeness of God, who is his buyer? Tell me who is his seller to God alone belongs this power or rather not even to God himself. God would not reduce the human race to slavery since God himself, when we had been enslaved to sin, spontaneously recalled us to freedom. But if God does not enslave what is free, who is he that sets his own power above God's? You know, that's such a fantastic quote. And, And to think you know, he's continuing a line, of course, that, that Paul had begun to, to establish in the New Testament. We read, Paul encouraged slaves to be obedient to their masters, recognizing that actually we're all free in Christ. And of course, this is the whole, you know, the whole point of his letter to Philemon. Um, but now we get Gregory here in in 390, you know, so basically, you know, 300, 320 years later, 350 years later. Writing that, that slavery actually is something that is contrary to the will of God. And so it shows a great development of doctrine, but it also shows he's writing this in 395 and it still took us until the 19th century to you know finally eradicate slavery. Um, we Christians have, a, a, you know, we have this great development of doctrine, but sometimes we, we miss the really good ideas from the church fathers, you know, and it's in returning to these and thinking about these and praying with these that we realize those guys had it right. You know, the fathers from whom we receive the faith, um, they had a great gift and that was probably the fruit of his own contemplative prayer. Right. This is the other thing is Gregory and the early church fathers particularly are doctrinally sound because they are in deep relationship with God in contemplative prayer. This is not just book learning for them. This is experience of lived life with God in our own time. We can see this, too. You know, Mother Teresa had what was what we know now is a profound dark night of the soul. But she continued to practice charity and to teach love. And that's because somewhere in that deep dark of her soul, she was in communion with the God who she couldn't see or experience except out of a profound desire to love the other. And that, as you say, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be taking from our prayer these fruits that drive us out in charity and love for our brother and sister our brothers and sisters inviting them into relationship with Christ
0: yeah that that's so true and we often don't think we do that enough no you know I uh, we're right. willing we're willing to talk to people about other people in our lives that mean something to us like you know like i'm sure when you were dating Jules and people were saying uh, who's this? Who's Jules? Who, who's this? Jules? Oh, and you would tell them all about him or all about her and how awesome she is and how special she is. And she might be the one and all this kind of stuff. But why don't we do that with Jesus? Yeah. You know, Who, who's the most important priest? Oh, Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Da, da, da. Because then, see, then th- what's the difference? If we say Jesus is the heart and the center, the most important relationship in our life, why aren't we willing to tell people about him? Why aren't we willing to share? Because we we're gonna be labeled Jesus freak or this, you know, are people gonna look at us funny. But yet if we're in love, how could you not talk about the person that you're in love with? How can you not talk about what they mean to you? You know, uh I mean obviously in a way that's not crazy, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. just to share your heart with that person. I mean, that that's the thick the beauty of our faith that's an opportunity that's being missed today uh, of effective evangelization, just sharing our love for Jesus.
1: Amen. Well, on that note, Deacon, I don't think there's any better way to leave this evening. Our conversation, <laughs> as always, has come to uh, an abrupt end, but a good one. So we invite you to connect with us uh, on Facebook. Just go to Livingstones Media. You can also download previous episodes of the show at MaterDeiRadio.com. But Deacon, until we gather next week and we meet the third and most exciting, in some ways, of the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, might we have a blessing to get us through this time?
0: May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones.
0: You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I-Radio.com.